0: listening to a bonus episode of the futures podcast. I'm currently hosting a monthly discussion on artificial intelligence over at SingularityNet's YouTube channel as part of their decentralized OS web series. For those of you who don't know, SingularityNet is a decentralized marketplace for artificial intelligence. On this month's episode of the series called Decentralized Future, I interviewed product designer Tom Gruber, who was head of design for the team that created the Siri virtual assistant. You can watch a full video version of this discussion on SingularityNet's YouTube channel or at futurespodcast.net. Now, Tom Gruber has been pivotal to the developments of many of the innovations that have helped humans augment their intelligence in their daily lives. Most famously, he was the head of design for the company that created Siri, one of the world's most popular intelligent assistants. More broadly, he's interested in a wide range of ideas, from how machines and humans can foster collaboration to how AI enables learning, knowledge sharing, and productivity. But Tom, I want to start at the beginning and ask, what what is humanistic AI? What is this idea about, and how does that differ from AI?
1: Yeah, good question, Luke. So, if you think about what we've we, we've been seeing in the press that celebrates, you know, the achievements of AI, we often hear the like, oh, AI just beat humans at something. We just beat <laughs> humans at chess or go or something like that, or, or we just had humans that, uh, AI that replaced human jobs, you know, um, and. You know, that's a kind of AI that's, um, that's not collaborative. It's, not, it's competitive, right? And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's celebrating automation for automation's sake. Um, humanistic AI says, let's put the human in the center of this. And let's, let's frame the role of AI as either augmenting humans, making humans better at what humans want to be good at, or collaborating with them, being a partner in some kind of intelligent task. And intelligent agents can do both of those things. So humanistic AI is basically a, a, a way of choosing what to do with your technology that will give you the kind of, kind of outcomes that you really
0: want. Is, is humanistic AI similar to the idea of intelligence augmentation?
1: It's very related. I mean, augmentation is one of the strategies you would use. A humanistic AI says, let's make sure that we use AI that helps people get, do what people want to do. Well, one mm. of the things like I want to do is I want to have better vision and better hearing and better memory and mm. better cognition, and that's augmentation, so when we put on glasses, we're augmenting ourselves. But with AI, we can augment our cognitive abilities as well. And that's absolutely central to it. Um, and it's, it's not just AI. And, and really, this whole idea of augmentation includes this whole notion of getting feedback about what's going on with you. And so this whole notion of quantified self is a piece of that puzzle, but also the whole feedback loop of like, how am I doing this task? How alert am I? How am I doing? And the AI is actually a partner in that
0: feedback loop. Mm -hmm. So the AI that knows you better helps you be better well it, it feels like one of the key things in that feedback loop is the idea of an intelligent assistant. and intelligent assistance is is really uh, what you're known for. So why is this idea of of having a, an AI that that knows us better than sometimes we know ourselves, why is this such a compelling use case?
1: Well, if you think about the basics you know when they, Siri was started about ten years ago and at that mm-hmm. point we had the the dawn of the web 2.0 world where we had this enormous bounty of web services, uh, Yelp and Google and um, Maps and Wikipedia and all these things were coming online. We found that if you had 10 fingers and a a keyboard and a good internet (laughs) connection and plenty of time, um, you could, in fact, take advantage of all those services. But the moment you start carrying around a mobile device... You, you really, you can't do it. You need a Jarvis, just like mm. the guy in Iron Man needs a Jarvis to help him drive around when he's doing these crazy uh, contraptions. So so Siri was invented as a way of, say, augmenting us, us normal mortals who carry around tiny little screens to get all the benefits of this huge web in, uh, infrastructure that was coming online. Um, and, and so it really is... It was a humanistic play. Both uh, the the other technical co-founder, Adam Chire, and I are both the big fans of a guy named Doug Engelbart. And he was like the guy who really made augmentation, uh, technical augmentation, as as the goal for computer science, uh, really well known. Um, he also invented the mouse and his collaborative computing and hypertext, among other things. Um, so, anyway, that's, that's the idea basically. The Siri you, it's, it's an intelligent assistant, but it, its goal wasn't to be an assistant for its own sake. It was to make the users able to get the benefit of the technology that was out there.
0: Well, you're most known for your role in the design of Siri. And I just wonder what inspired the creation of, of this platform?
1: Well, we we saw this potential that uh, language was a natural interface. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that with, you know, they already were everyone's sick and tired of trying to help people muck through all the mess of web interfaces. And, you know, the the, the typing and the clicking and all this stuff, it's Mm -hmm. already hard enough for normal people to use this stuff. Um, But then when we went to mobile, it's even more extreme. So now we say, well, what is something that everyone can do or everyone can do language? All right. So we, we resurrected this decades old vision of which we didn't invent, you know, of an assistant, an AI assistant as an interface. Um, and, and then we said, what would it do to what would it take to bring this this artifact of an, an assistant to life so that it can so you can use what you're born with, your natural language uh, to to get all the benefit of your technology?
0: I mean, it feels like there must have been so many challenges in those early days in the process of building something like Siri when the technology was was very limited. So, are you able to tell us about some of those challenges and and how you developed technology to overcome them?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm really proud of this little tiny startup Siri. When when um, when Apple bought us, there were 24 people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and wow. we had created uh, you know the first mainstream AI assistant that actually did did all the things we all expect them to do now. Um, now. 20, that's a small team. Um, And uh, so that's one thing is like, well, it was a challenge. How do you do this? Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is they built it in maybe, they built it in two years, which is also kind of astonishing. So I'm really proud of of the software engineering and the design side. So we had to overcome challenges there. Now we did it the way startups do, which is to, work really hard and iterate and collaborate well. So we iterated through hundreds of designs, lots of, we tried everything a bunch of times before we got it right. We didn't, we couldn't afford to have a big waterfall project and just fail. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that we had to deal with the uncertainty of the technology. Now when we started the company in early 2008, um, there was very little at that point, viable speech recognition at scale. Uh, mm-hmm. there was the speech recognition companies that you like the kind you have in your car <laughs> you know how well that works right was, I mean yeah. the standard was pretty low back then um, so we had to say well we're betting the farm here that we're going to have natural language and speech which are two different unsolved problems um, in the mainstream in in, in in a couple of years and and so we had to very carefully watch the technology and see where it was going and we found fa- we, we decided to go ahead and pull the trigger and go for speech when we when we saw that, When you add consumer scale data as a feedback loop to the engines that learn how to do speech recognition, then they could actually cross a threshold of quality. And then we'd also bet that after a few more years, if we could in fact bring an assistant to the mainstream, we would have a feedback loop of of positive returns. That is we'd have enough data so that the speech could really get good, which you saw later after a few years, it got much better. And that was because of the data.
0: And I mean, that that partly was was Apple, wasn't it? Bringing it to a consumer at a mass scale probably was the only way to get access to that sort of uh, speech data. So, how did Apple, after they they purchased the Siri project, how did they iterate on it? And were you happy with some of the, the changes and the ways in which they rolled it out?
1: Well, we, we took, remember, the basic philosophy is to help people get their technology benefits, right? Well, when mm-hmm. we were doing as a startup, we were thinking e-commerce, you know, buying things online, uh, ordering mm-hmm. pizza, whatever, that sort of thing, <laughs> between hotels. When Apple bought us, what their major problem was just using the things that were already on the phone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, calling and texting and calendaring and all these things that you already do on the phone. So, uh, so we, we retargeted the experiences, the use cases around those, around those problems and their big problems. Um, so they, that, that, that was good for Apple and good for us and good for the world because now we all have a phone that's slightly better, easier to use. And the other thing was that, that you asked about the data. Um, Well, of course, Apple has, uh, you know, presence in 36 countries and languages. It has enormous user base and so on. But it's also a very privacy protecting company. So -hmm. we did have to be very careful on how do we gather data so that it would only be used for speech recognition and only be used by people who clearly opted into it and so on. Um, And that was uh, a bit of a challenge because other companies, other platform companies don't have the same self-imposed restriction on the use of, of consumer data.
0: I mean, everybody knows uh, about using Siri to navigate their phone, but th- there's real important uh, work that's being done here. Because intelligent assistants, they can really change the lives of disabled individuals. And and these changes have life-changing consequences. I just wonder if you could tell us how you've seen the rollout of intelligent assist- uh, assistants really transform people's lives.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned in my, in my uh, Humanistic AI TED Talk one of the use cases for Siri was in fact for disabled people uh, in particular Mm -hmm. a friend uh, who is blind and paraplegic quadriplegic um, and he uses it to run his social life he wasn't able to do that before without a caregiver it's a profound to have a social life versus not having a social life is a big deal Um, Mm -hmm. and there's a whole bunch of other cases there for instance of there's a company I'm advising now called Cognition with an X and they're building a a kind of a high-end brain brain interface actually and a a neurotech interface to people who can't speak to speak, but they're hooking it up to to a virtual assistant so that they can not only speak, but also control their world. So open the door, turn on the lights and so on. Um, So again, that the assistant is a natural partner in this interface between the human and all the technology in the world.
0: And it feels like we're at this kind of mid stage at the moment, where we're collecting all of the speech data that we're finding use cases out in in the world for how something like Siri or other intelligent assistants can be used. But what do you think is the ultimate aim for intelligent assistants like Siri? How do they truly make us smarter?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, they. I think you said before the word augmentation. That's my philosophy. Is that. Yep. The, the, we're, we're all challenged. I mean, I'm a cognitive psychologist by training. And, and, you know, if you read these people like Siegel and so on, they'll tell you real clearly that humans are very limited. We know, what we know about human psychology is that we're, we're kind of limited. We're finite. Um, now, AIs are very limited in their own way, and they're going to be limited forever. But what they're good at is, <clears throat> is different than what we're good at. AIs have certain skills. We have other skills. And so that, that combination is going to be great. Now, I, I, I popularized this idea of, of a collective memory or group memory. Um, mm-hmm. also applied to an individual, uh, a personal memory. Uh, and a personal memory is something that an AI assistant can be really good at. Uh, just like, you know, hey, you know, hey, human assistant, what, what was that thing we did? What was that meeting we did? What was that movie we saw? Who was that person we met? What's their favorite, you know, sport, whatever. Even small things like that, or even larger things like you, maybe you're looking. So you're saying, well, who was that character I interviewed four years ago that did something <laughs> and so? Computers are really good at those sort of things. And there's mm-hmm. no and so, and humans are really good at this understanding the human other humans. And so maybe what we can do is have assistants whose job is really to mediate uh, these external memories, external resources, um, to be the interface to these other things that make us smarter. And there's a lot of more examples of that.
0: I mean, that idea raises a whole bunch of philosophical questions about whether we would even want AI to enhance our memory. Would we really want perfect recall? Isn't there sometimes an importance of uh, of forgetting?
1: Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. Like there's a great Dark mirror episode in this, of course. Um, <laughs> there <They> always <wizards. laughs> uh, Yeah, Black mirror. They, uh-huh. uh, they, if you take any of these to extreme, of course, perfect memory, if it's if it's incorporated the wrong way into the policies mm-hmm. and cultural norms, can be a can be a nightmare, right? Um, because it, it would imply a lack of privacy. Uh, now, you can, in fact, navigate memory and privacy, um, just like you can navigate. You know, think about this. We've had. We had, for the longest time, we had the ability for people to be anonymous just because they were uh, unable to be tracked by the technology. Uh, that that advantage is going away. It's going to be hard to be anonymous anymore in places mm-hmm. with sensors all over the place and centralized networks and computers. Um, it's already gone in some places, China and so on, but it's going to be gone in other places just because of the nature of this. Well, society doesn't just sit back and go, oops, it's all over. We can renegotiate our contract with, each, with ourselves and say, well, it's okay to have um, memory and cameras here, but not there. It's like there's mm-hmm. no cameras in the bedroom, there's no tapping of private phone calls or so on. You can draw these boundaries. And there's no reason why you can't do that with a cognitive uh, enhancement as well. Um, we don't let uh, athletes take um, steroids um, because it makes the game, it, it ruins the game. Um, so we don't allow So all of these things are rules of the game. That's an arbitrary rule. You could say, well, in my sport, you can take steroids, but then it'd be a different game. Um, so I again, that's the so the, this is another variant of the it's technology is sort of value neutral. It's how you apply it kind of argument. Um, but it's actually quite true in the case of A.I., because we're going to see superhuman cognition coming out and, and it's not going to be evenly distributed. So we're going to have to think about how to uh, make a policy that is, reflects our vi- values as a society.
0: I mean, this seems to be the tension, doesn't it? Because we we almost want intelligent assistants to help us, and and the moment they're they're kind of almost there, there's a little bit of clunkiness about them, and and we kind of assume that because some of these intelligent uh, voice-activated assistants are a little clunky, that AI really isn't having much of an impact on humanity. But then you look at how AI and algorithms are used to nudge certain behaviours, and suddenly you realise, oh my goodness, Goodness, no, AI really is here, and it does have a massive impact. So, how do we ethically design some of these tools and technologies that we have we have coming over the uh, horizon?
1: Well, yeah. To your, to your point, there. I mean, we we have we have what looks like sort of not so bright AI right now. Mm-hmm. We have <laughs> we have assistants that mostly understand our language as long as it's in short bursts and so on. And we have you know we have um, computer vision that has a kind of a probabilistic sense of who you are. It kind of knows with some percentage that it knows who you are, that kind of thing. We have a kind of an AI that can do interesting things, um, but it certainly isn't, you know, omniscient or general AI or anything like that. But lurking in plain daylight is the fact that we have absolute super intelligence Mm. in one dimension that's driven by AI. And that's the ability to control human behavior at scale 4 billion human beings are part of a system that, which is being controlled at scale to get them to do what? Stay online.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? That's AI-driven stuff, right? And it's a superpower that no dictator has ever had. Nobody who has ever, who's ever tried to have been as successful as the social media platforms at getting people to do things against their will, which is to stay online for hours at a time and follow themselves down these rat holes of delusion. So... Mm. Oh, okay, why did that happen? Well, it happened in an unregulated, free fall, free for all uh, environment. That's not the only way we can run a society. <laughs> you know, we can say there is there are boundaries. So yeah. we start. We're just began to start. Like for instance, we say it's not okay to incite violence on in, in speech. Mm-hmm. It's it's always been true in public speech, but it's also we can say it doesn't we, we don't get to do that in private speech either. So, OK, and you can regulate that. So there's a lot of things. And it's funny the thing is because the AI, again, is it's not that much different than other kinds of things. You could also do this with CRISPR, a bunch of other things where we say these are powerful technologies, very scary if used <laughs> in the wrong hands. But we have to not let it be used the wrong way.
0: Well, this is the interesting thing about behavioural control and and how it operates at the algorithmic scale. Because what it's really doing is is mechanomorphizing us. We we hear the idea of with the idea of attributing human attributions to uh, objects. But really, what it's doing is attributing machinic attributions to what it means to be human. And and there's some advantages there, I guess, because if you if you want to understand a human, or if an AI wants to understand a human, the best way to do that is to stop a human from being human and speaking in a quote-unquote natural way, and get them to speak in a machinic way to reduce their communication to 140 characters. That's so much easier to understand than say uh, say sarcasm. So, uh, so you know, how mm. do we how do we balance these these current tensions? Ultimately, how do we ensure that we don't take all of the awful things about the attention economy and bring those into the future when we think about the design of AI
1: well there, there's, there's so sort of, like I said there's policy ways things and there's also technical things you can do yep. so for one thing is the reason why the attention economy uh, industry has gotten so good at behavior control is because we're all, because we're already um, digitally mediated through the clicks and words and sliding and all that stuff we do with yep. the devices so we already have very clear computer readable signal that we're giving them um, the other side of it is the and the behavior that they want to optimize is easy to measure, which is stay online, keep clicking. Um, now, if uh, if we wanted to maybe try a little harder, we could say let's try to do a behavior which is more in line with what we actually want to do as human beings. Our the goal of our life is not to spend you know a tenth of our work- waking lives uh, at, the, at following ads. Right. So how do, how do we do that? Well, you say, for instance, let's say you're on a video game, um, today, right now, the, most of the video games are optimized for dopamine, uh, mediated, uh, ang- uh, you know, anger, violence, mm-hmm. competition, and so on. Um, with the new technology, with AR and just the immersiveness of the new technology, um, there's no excuse to have to go down to that level of activation. Secondly, the 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 feedback about what's going on in the user's brain has been absent up until now. So you have a shoot'em game or something, and the user's just going down some crazy like anger thing or whatever it is, and the machine doesn't know. Mm Machine is just saying level one, level two, level three. Um, But in the future, in the near future, those cameras and sensors and the, the equivalent of what the social media people get from their users, you can get from gamers. Mm. To know what's actually going on, are they in fact uh, aroused, and how long have they been aroused? Are they in fact looking at the screen in a dazed-like way? Are they, are they screaming over the mic to their pals? Are they, you know, are they uh, have that? Have they moved much, or are they still sitting in the same position they've been in for forty-five minutes? Right. These are yeah. these are signals that are now available, and so we can transform it from being a manipulate the behavior in one, for one purpose, which is to optimize the machine's uh, goal, to Change into a control loop where the goal is to manipulate the human behavior for its own benefit. So, mm-hmm. like, okay, let's, for instance, let's make a classifier that distinguishes between pro-social behavior and antisocial behavior in a simulated environment. It's not trivial to make those, but it's doable. And if you do make one of those, then you can have the same optimization technology used to get people to stay online and click to optimise things, cues, incentives, and so on, that cause them to do this pro-social behaviour.
0: But that that feels, in part, like a a technological solution to a technological problem. I mean, at the end of the day, what's going to motivate Anybody to design something to stop people from being pro social. If they found out that, you know, it, when someone is feeling in a certain state of tiredness, they're more likely to click on an ad and buy something, then surely that's going to be the motivating factor that drives the design decision in that case.
1: Well, if you think about it, you know, these, these are the same reasons. What's going to motivate someone to build a toxic medical, uh, toxic chemical that pollutes the water supply or mm. that, that destroys the climate? What's going to motivate them and what's going to stop them from doing it? Well, just think it's not going to be like profit motive by itself, mm. right? it will have to be profit motive sitting in some kind of double or triple bottom line environment where we're evaluating more than just a single goal. Um, and we're evaluating human welfare in the optimization function. And that can be done, and but it won't be done on its. It won't automatically happen. It has to happen from a societal, or a governmental, or, or some kind of self-regulatory environment. Now, I don't think that's that crazy. I'm not. I don't think I'm a, that crazy left-wing radical. I think it's something. Double bottom line has been around in the business community for years. Um, the stakeholders group of, of the top two hundred corporations in the world have agreed that there are stakeholders beyond shareholders. That they're not shareholders are not the only important one. Uh, so. This is just a conversation that we can start to have now in 2021. We have, in the US at least, we have a different uh, possibility to have governance. And we have, uh, we have a world in which corporations are now at the same par of influence as governments. Um, And so they are seeing that they have a responsibility to the entire world, you know, an ethical and sort of a stakeholder relationship with the world. That mm. human human behavior is not just a thing to to extract uh, value out of.
0: I mean, I, I know you work with the Center for Humane Technology, who have just become famous because of the uh, the Netflix documentary, the Social Dilemma. And I just wonder what is some of the work you're doing with them right now, which is trying to help build that better social relationship with technology.
1: Yeah, this is Tristan Harris and Company. It's a fabulous organization. I recommend Mm -hmm. people go. And, of course, see the movie Social Dilemma. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, Their uh, basic tactic is to work within industry to try to influence from within and then to give uh, uh, expert um, advice to government. And so if you think about what they... That a lot of the move, you maybe haven't read about the sort of more subtle things, but they're really working hard to make it so that employees who are considering where to use their very valuable talents as engineers or designers um, get to tell their employers, I don't want to work for a company that does this kind of thing or that kind of thing. I mm-hmm. want to work on an optimization function that is more than just staying online. I want to work on optimization function for human welfare. So if you start introducing these concepts at the grassroots of the, well, at the, at the place where it's generated, Uh, that is engineers, designers, and and managers, and so on. Um, That's one of the tactics that they're doing, which is, I really think is great. I I think the other thing is the awareness thing. I mean, the movie was great, but there's a lot more to the story. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that that just the sheer scale. I mean, you think about it, and Tristan has this great quote, which I love to retell, which is, you know, there are more people um, addicted to Facebook and more people addicted to YouTube than people who are in the organized religions of the world, the top hmm. two, c- Catholicism and and Hindu, like they, I mean, and those, those organizations only have you pray a few times a day, right? Not, not, not hundreds of times a day. And so the, this, is a, this is a thing that just sheer awareness has to, ha- has to happen. We have to realize that this happened uh, in front of us. Oh, by the way, it happened in like five years. In like five years when social went mobile. The suicide rate for teen girls went up 70, percent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the amount of serious depression that's involved to, uh, that would be kind of leading to suicide to serious depression went up equal amount. So, I mean, is it, this is not a coincidence. This happened because all of a sudden now we have a wearable computer that's in our, in our inner loops of our lives every day with no brakes on it, manipulated mm-hmm. by the most powerful AI that's ever been invented to control human behavior. Um, and there's and there's just no no stopping the the, the machine, so. Um so that's that's what they're trying to do is stop that, create I mean, some awareness. I, I mean, yeah. the,
0: the question is, they've created this awareness, but are they actually doing enough? Because I see so much active work by underfunded organisations and privacy advocates who've been holding big tech accountable for years, but they didn't have that voice or a Netflix platform, or they didn't previously work at Google, so they they've constantly been ignored. And and is there a way in which the Centre for Humane Technology can help give the smaller organizations who've been nipping at the heels of big tech for so long now give them uh, access to that microphone that they've been able to build?
1: Well, I think they're all on the same side of civil society, the Center for Human Mm. Tech and the other organizations, ACLU and all these other people care about privacy and so on. Um, uh, I think the difference is really not about CHT, it's about the government. Um, Mm. We had a government for four years in which science was uh, dismissed, facts were dismissed, truth was dismissed. Uh, it was basically power for power's sake, right? And in that environment, you actually can't have effective government. It doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, and so that's, that is over. We're back to government again. It's not, you know, don't you can have your politics all you want, but we have a government now. We don't have a a guy who's trying to take over. And so, with that new model, there are going to be more people who are in the mid career or late career who have tech backgrounds who are willing to step up and maybe go to Washington and either influence or work uh, in those in in policy. I think that's going to be a big change. And I think CHT can have a big impact on uh, helping to recruit and organize that kind of uh, activity and the other piece of it is there's there's also the uh, partnership of ai to help benefit society people in society it's called partnershipforai.org and they uh, they were formed as an explicit industry collaboration with civil society so it's it's 50/50 industry like in the the, the big six uh, corporations that do ai uh, amazon google apple and so on and then the, like, uh, you know, a bunch of open, like, uh, like I say, ACLU and, you know, the, the, the these, these people you're talking about that who want to have a voice in the conversation, mm-hmm. this organization is giving them a voice and making recommendations in a sort of a systemic think tank way. So that again, um, both industry, industry can look at that and make a decision. I mean, if you notice, like, I, I can't say, I don't talk to Tim Cook. I don't know what he, or what he's thinking, why he's doing it. But, you know, I've been reading the news like you and, You know they're making things that like, hey, Facebook, you don't get to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. We're drawing a line here. This is it. We're not letting you do that anymore. Or hey, you know, hate speech person, we're not going to let you do that anymore. Facebook is saying that to some of the hate speech. I mean, these lines are being drawn. And if society goes, yay, yay, Apple, yay, Facebook, or whatever for doing those things, then the companies can now realize that they get to, they get to do these things. It's okay.
0: It, it does feel, really yeah. feel like the consumer is driving a lot of this this conversation and by put it the consumer doesn't sometimes realize how much power they do have to drive Big tech organisations to change the way they're doing things, and and you're, and you're right. The the Apple um, story that's occurring right now, and the way in which they're they're putting a little bit of pressure on Facebook, is absolutely fascinating. It, it could actually be driven from the from the top down, but I do worry that that what all of that sort of leans towards is a self-regulatory model, which I know we've seen work uh, to the detriment of humanity when it comes to self-regulated uh, finance. Um it does feel <laughs> like Tristan and Co because they're a little bit too heavily connected with silicon valley that they've got friends with skin in the game there's there's members of the uh, CHT who have s- tech stocks you know <laughs> it really works against them if they were to put pressure on some of these companies so you know uh, th- does it feel like we're moving towards a self-regulatory model there well, is it's a that- point. The,
1: the people in CHT who have who are tech people um, are uh, absolutely full all in uh, on, really? on getting them to change their behavior there's no there's no uh, conflict of interest there. Yeah. Um, like people like Roger McNamee, uh, who has tons <laughs> of talk in Facebook, but, but he, he's problem. writing books yeah. running around telling people that Zuck uh, is a, is dangerous. But why, so I mean it's not doesn't, like he,
0: Why doesn't McNamee <laughs> just divest in
1: Facebook then?
0: I mean wouldn't that I, I be a uh...
1: I don't know if he still owns news talk. Right. if I were him, I would have divested by now. But you know, mm. I mean but the, the thing is Look, um, the bigger picture is you know can yep. co- gov- government uh, can industry self regulate? Well, it's subtle. Um, you can. There's all kinds of like lobbyist talking points around this issue. But if you think about what's happening in en- energy, the energy markets, the futures markets for energy, and the investment community that would say decide whether a power plant is being created or not and what kind. Mm-hmm. Those markets are extremely strongly motivated to they're they're investing in sustainable non-climate changing technologies and, and, techno- and, and approaches. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it because they're nice people. They're doing it because they have an expectation that society will demand this. And that, and they, but they do have a long-term goal. They are S- specialists at long-term planning. They're basically investing money for 10 or 20 years. So, So if you have a long-term brain and you think, well, what is society gonna think long-term? Then you're gonna be influenced by that. So I think that's gonna happen with social media where they realize that this thing this nightmare happened overnight um they could be displaced or we, severely weakened by either a regulatory thing or just a backlash and so mm-hmm. uh so they if they're smart and thinking a little bit longer than the quarter uh quarterly earnings then they can um they they have their own incentives that are still enterprise you know for the good of the corporation, but a little bit more than one quarter.
0: It, it does It does feel like legacy thinking is the thing that may actually uh, uh, save humanity uh, when it comes to the relationship between um, us and big tech. But I, I want to return to uh, a little bit more about AI and, and a problem that you've been thinking about for a long time, which is the issue of natural language processing. And As you mentioned there, sometimes it's easier to get humans to think in machinic ways than it is for machines to understand. understand. Understand human (laughs) beings, and and, then there is that interesting tension there. But when and how, I guess, did you first get interested in the challenge that is natural language processing?
1: Well, I've been involved in natural language a lot of my career. Um, Mm -hmm. I've liked, I've always liked uh, the idea that language is as an interface, Um, Mm -hmm. and. And my first AI project was actually language as an output, which is uh, an early version of this uh, human-assisted technology to help people speak who can't speak. So we could generate hook people to a computer, and they could do what they can do with their motor control, and then it would generate speech for them, like Stephen Hawking-type people. Um, Now, this, but also just in terms of interface, uh, um, you know, humans on the input side can use language better than other than other modalities. So I'm really mostly motivated by the fact that by language is easy for humans to do. Now. We've also turned a corner in just the last few years, where language is now at language as the representation of knowledge is becoming um, understandable by computers. So there's mm-hmm. technology now that um, pretty much you could read every single line in every single document in every single company's archives, and have have technology extract the facts, not retrieve the documents, but extract the meaning of the sentences as mm-hmm. facts. Now it's not, it's not understanding the nuance of poetry. It's not generating great dialogue that, that makes people laugh or no, but it's understanding facts. That's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. So now language is not only an interface, but it's a medium that computers can share in. So that's, that's super exciting to me. And that's been through all along. We started out in the early days, Tom Malone's professor at MIT. who was influenced, influenced me early on. on something he called semi-structured knowledge. Which is basically you have like like email, for instance. The structured part is like the address. The mm-hmm. computers have an unambiguous, clear understanding of what that means. But the unstructured part is what does the subject line mean? Right. And so there this technologies of structured and unstructured have been have been moving throughout the decades. And now we're getting to the point where the unstructured piece is understood by the machines almost as well as the structured piece. And that changes everything.
0: Well for anybody who might not know how does natural language processing actually work and and what is the importance of neural nets in, in making it work hmm.
1: Well so there's 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 speech and natural language and then there's other things so if you hmm. think about the speech coming in when when uh, Alexa Siri when they they hear the sound and then they, they generate the text that you see that's speech to text or, or speech recognition and that's mm. completely driven by neural nets that know nothing other than the data that's been given to them but they but now they're getting enough data there's enough examples of people saying enough words in enough orders so that the machines can sort of you know smooth over all those examples and make a generalization that can get to close to human abilities to do speech mm. recognition now humans aren't perfect at speech recognition, by the way, they're like, I don't know, 90%, 95%. good. Because you ever hear something? So, what was that? I didn't hear that. That's, yeah, yeah. that's, that's an error, in a sense. Um, but the way we get around it is because we do natural language understanding, natural language understanding is taking the word sequences and making sense of them. Knowing that that sentence meant, you know, man bites dog, what does that mean? It means there was a human mm-hmm. agent called, you know, in other words, it's not just a bag of words. Now, that has been a problem for a long time, and neural nets are now, um, particularly transformers, are changing the way that we, we understand that text. Again, it's driven because we have this ridiculous amount of text data on the web as, as training examples. And we have um, essentially uh, deep-pocketed research places like Google and Open uh, OpenAI and so on who are investing, basically keeping NVIDIA happy by investing in gobs and gobs and gobs <laughs> of, of GPUs, which are these like supercomputers on a chip that can do math, and all these things do is run all day long, making these ridiculously large generalizations over everything that's ever been written on the on the web. Um, is that the same thing as language understanding? Uh, maybe that's not the question you asked, but it's an interesting question. I'd, I don't know. Maybe we can talk about it. Um, but it looks like it is to many people. Like In other words, it's, it is so good at understanding what sequences of words appear in all the written examples it's ever seen that it's hard to know the difference between what it, it can do and what a lot of people do when they're looking at natural language.
0: I mean I guess the the challenge that we have today right now is the idea of context it is so difficult to um, and not just ask an AI for something or ask an intelligent assistant for something but to have a true conversation with it so it understands sort of what your thought process is as you're asking the sorts of questions that you're asking so how do you think we we solve the the context issue that we seem to have
1: well, I, I love that you bring out context. Context is super important, and context is hmm. basically everything that you need to know, other than what was literally said, yeah. to make sense of what was said. Right? Uh-huh. It's like, why are you asking me that, that
0: question? Yeah. Why is the question
1: exactly, or why why that tone of voice, or or like what does it mean? What yep. did we previously say to each other? If you say something, if I dropped some, you know, term of trade. Like GPU, I just said a second ago. Well, I mean, you probably know what G it is. I have, maybe for other people I'm talking to, I have to say. For my mom, for instance, I say, well, it's just a very expensive small computer, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so, but the point is that that's context, and we mm-hmm. and we we naturally use context every day when we understand language. So, but it's not magic; it's just science and engineering and data. So, as we get more data examples, like for instance, the neural nets are now understanding long context as opposed to short context. It used to be that you just have to, you get little, little blurts of, like, you know, four or five words in a row. <laughs> that's what it would understand. But now these machines can kind of keep a bigger gulp in their head at one time and understand long context. Um, they're still doing it in kind of an idiot savant way. These neural nets are still just basically doing mat- matrix math on a giant, giant amount of data, but, but it basically, it's appearing to approximate linguistics and, um, um, see, it could be if you get high enough in the this question of does it really understand, and you're getting back to these basic philosophy problems of of AI, right? Is yep. is, is it just that you know is it people imitating or is it actually is there such a thing as intelligence other than projection or other than imitation? Um, these are hard questions, your philosophic questions. But in the case of natural language, you, the, the operative thing would be give it a bunch of uh, tests where um, you know, there's no way it looks like anything. Uh, It's it's, this doesn't have any super similarity at all to the meaning. And does it still understand? And there's a thing called a Winograd uh, predicate or Winograd question Mm. that is trying to get at that. And they and they are the, the AIs are actually making progress in on those kind of questions.
0: I mean, how close are we to an AI understanding sarcasm, for example? Because there used to be an old joke of if you wanted to mess with market research bots that were trawling through sentiment analysis on Twitter, all you have to do is be very, very sarcastic. Oh, I love Coca-Cola. Oh, I love Pepsi. You know, they don't understand that the the tone under which that uh, message was was sent. Is there a way mm-hmm. AI can potentially start understanding oh, yeah, sarcasm? There's nothing mystical.
1: I mean, these, like, the, there's been a, dozens of PhDs in linguistics <laughs> on sarcasm, yeah. uh, on, on all, every kind of linguistic thing. Um, it's just a matter of, is there data that represents it? What is, it, what is the phenomenon? Can you find it? it? It isn't that hard. I mean, the tricky thing would be, back to your point about context, in general, would you know that I'm being sarcastic because you would predict that any agent of my sort with my background would make certain inferences? you know make Mm. certain assumptions that's a context question and so if you have two robots that meet each other and one has wheels and one has legs and they could make assumptions about the other person's um you know point of view in the world that Mm. would that would look so, so they would misunderstand the language as sarcasm just because they have different life experiences and different body plans so there isn't really a linguistic answer to this in general.
0: Uh, well, and let's talk about it in the context, I guess, of of, of Siri and Alexa and, and maybe some of the science fiction versions of uh, intelligent um, assistants, such as Hal. Uh, there, there are fundamental differences there, aren't there? There's similarities between those things, but also there's fundamental differences with how uh, folks are thinking about uh, intelligent assistants at the design level, and and equally, there's. Um, vast amount of difference in how you're thinking about it from a design perspective at Sherpa.ai. So in what way, I guess, is is Sherpa AI fundamentally different from Siri? Oh, well, Sherpa is one of the companies I'm advising, and they are a
1: white-label version of Siri, Alexa, and so on. They're they're a white-label assistant. And so uh, that's interesting. It's just that the industry has moved to a point where it's not just platforms. You can actually make custom ones um, Hmm. for cars or for, you know, headsets or for particular, you know, w- websites or whatever. Um, now, that's, uh, but there's nothing fundamentally d- d- different in character between Sherpa and, and the other and the major AI assistants, other than it happens to be better at certain things like personalization. But the, the main thing is that um, the whole class, the whole class of virtual assistants today are kind of in a, in a, in a state. Right? I mean, obviously, at the beginning, Siri, and very quickly after, Alexa and Google Assistant came in with this current set of expectations that it should be able to understand uh, basically utterances that are mostly either questions to ask a knowledge source mm-hmm. or things to do, tasks, and it can get those. Um, it doesn't have a dialogue, much. it doesn't have much of a conversational sense, um, and it doesn't do um, anything like, you know, just tell me a joke. It doesn't make a joke up. It just has answers, mm-hmm. right? Um, the next phase will be... To, in fact, uh, get a bit more of agency in there. So, so today they're basically assistant as interface, and tomorrow they'll be assistant as agent, which is more like Hal or my favorite her, like the Samantha character in her, um, where it's actually a social being. Now, the th- funny thing is, we have idiot savant social beings today. We have Chow Ice in China. We have a million stupid little chatbots that are some of them <laughs> made by Russians, some of them made by hackers, whatever. They're all pretending to be human. Um, and they're succeeding not because they're good AI, but because humans just can't stop. They can't help themselves of projecting <laughs> agency into yep. conversational agents. Um, so, but but anyway, but they don't pass Turing tests and everything because they just they aren't agency. And so now, but it doesn't take magic to create agency. AI, mm. real AI researchers who didn't use neural nets have been working on this for decades and decades and making progress. Um, Uh, But it's not going to, I don't think it's going to happen because we just have bigger, more GPUs. I think it's going to happen because we understand the psychology and the the sort of social linguistics of social interaction. And I do think we're going to get there faster now than we ever did before because we have online Mm. data. We have a lot of examples of social behavior right now that are machine readable. And we never had that before. And from that, we can make better theories and we can make, with the theories, we can make Uh, machines that do the theories.
0: What about putting humans in the loop? And the, the, the frustration I have with things like Alexa is, if I ask a question and or a, ask something of it that it can't deliver, it never hands me over to a human. The wonderful thing about the, or the problematic thing about the the telephone robots is, at least eventually you can get through to a human if you want to. Should there perhaps be a human in the loop? Should that be an important part of the design process when something new or original is asked by a human? being? being of an intelligent agent that it hands that question over to a human individual to fill in the gap? Or is that sort of design already occurring out in the world? Well that idea's been around for a while.
1: There's a guy named Ackerman mm-hmm. that down at UC Irvine had this idea called answer garden yeah. early on, which is kind of like an early version of Quora where uh-huh. you would like, you'd ask a question of the web and if it could search and get an answer, it would give you the answer. If it didn't have an answer, it would place the answer in the garden and mm-hmm. then some expert would come around and answer it. Um, and it's a self-organizing knowledge base of questions and answers. Mm. You could imagine, but that's a slow-moving one. But you can imagine the same principle being applied to things you ask assistants to do. You know, Now, I could ask uh, Siri all day long to take my dry clean to the cleaners, and it's never <laughs> going to be able to do that. Um, but it could probably, if you hooked it up to the kind of web services that my colleague Adam Chire envisioned, mm. there's no reason why you couldn't have a web interface to all the dry cleaners in the world that have online presences and have them say, this is what we do. We do the dry cleaning thing. And the assistant go, I don't know what you mean by today. Let me check on that. And then it can go, oh, wait a minute here, here's some services that do dry clean. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that, kind of collect, that kind of a learning loop is a, is a system level learning. It's like, it's like the answer garden where the, the collective gets smarter as the consumers, in this case, the person who needs dry cleaning and the producer, the dry cleaning service, uh, find each other. Right. And, um, and I think assistants have a ton of opportunities to grow in that, in that realm right now. Um, And there's even a way to do it economically. Obviously you can imagine how you could see how a pay to click kind of thing um, Mm -hmm. is a, is a good way to get through to that. Um, I don't know of examples. I can't sit here and tell am I don't have a company doing that or anything, but it's kind of an obvious Uh move. We're going to get there.
0: Well, well, this is again, one of the, the perceived problems of what may happen with intelligent assistants, especially where they're designed by a particular stack. With with Amazon and Amazon Alexa, for example, if you ask Amazon to purchase a product for you, it's not going to go to the multitude of possible places where a product can be purchased. It's going to go directly to Amazon. And Equally, if I was to ask an intelligent assistant on my phone to order a taxi cab for me, it's going to be confused as to whether to go to Uber or Lyft or the multitude of uh, possible um, platforms that there are. So, How do we get over that interoperability problem and and truly decentralise these things to allow them to make the best decisions for the Mm. end user human, and not have them tied to the biases of the uh, platform through which they were designed?
1: Well, I see what you're saying there. I mean, you think about it, the, the answers that economists get to that question is things like free markets, yeah. right? So okay. it's a decentralized way in which buyers find, sell- find sellers and so on. Mm-hmm. Amazon would claim that it's creating a marketplace. So it's not just a biased seller. It's a set of them. Uh, they're, of course, operating under, you know, in a welled garden. Um the, the assistant's job really can't be to, I mean, it's, it, an assistant, no matter how smart it is with language or whatever, isn't gonna be able to orchestrate a, a thing like a marketplace. But back to this idea that you could, you could surface your capabilities and have them be unknown to um, an assistant. So like if, if the person who's the Uber, for instance, uh, if there is an API that says, which there is now, the, the major assistants have this, but an API that says, I do ride sharing, and here's how I characterize my ride-sharing service. Here's the way that pricing works and availability mm-hmm. and all that. And if that's a standardized thing, then an assistant can then say, well, you can have your Uber or Lyft or whatever flavor you want because I'm talking to you in English and I'm translating that into a standard schema, basically, that uh, that we can be handed off to the back end. Um, this is an age-old problem. Uh, you know, I used to do this work on ontology, which is at the core of this problem how do you have machines how do you have a language that a machine can standardize on the, about the meaning mm. of things right and if you it, the moment you have that meaning representation then you can have multiple providers of a service on a on a level playing field
0: and I wonder whether there needs to be an intermediary almost. You, you mentioned very briefly the idea of us putting all of our digital detritus out into the world that then can be repurposed so that we can have perfect recall. You know, and some AI can go through all our social media posts and all of the, uh, the podcast interactions that I've had and basically give me instant recall of that something that you and I may have uh, may have spoken about. And uh, does the intelligent assistant necessarily need to talk to the human? Could it just talk to that digital 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 avatar version of me, and it reminds me of a uh, Greg Egan's uh, short story about the idea of having a little chip in your brain that learns everything about you, just just um, mm. nascently. It's I think this short story is called "Learning to Be Me," and then that's the thing eventually that replaces the uh, human brain. That's kind of the joke in that sh- short story. But by creating um, digital versions of us, which I guess already kind of exists with social media profiles and the ways in which algorithms on those platforms are interacting with our quote unquote digital selves. I mean, taking some form of ownership of a digital version of us and allowing Mm. that to make certain decisions on our behalf, something that knows our preferences uh, purely by ambiently studying how we interact with, with digital platforms and digital technology, surely that might be the thing that helps to deal with the translation issue. No, absolutely, I, that 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 data doesn't have to live in an assistant's brain.
1: It, it, I mean, mm-hmm. either I mean, there's one school of thought that says it should be something you can carry around. You can you carry mm-hmm. your medical record and your private data on your device. The other school rec- the school of thought says you should keep it in server farms in Mountain View or Menlo Park. Yeah. Um, and so those are both you know ways of approaching it. Uh, there's hybrid versions of that where you have a cloud, a virtual cloud, which is your private cloud, but it's still some in some data center somewhere, so on. Um, yeah, so the data can live anywhere. Um, the question is, is this a different kind of agent? I mean, it's really, it's your digital life. Um, and then there, on top of the data, there's any kind of inferences you can do. So, you mentioned things like preferences. Well, mm-hmm. preference learning is a task. You can have, like, I mean, you're talking about Sherpa.ai. That's one of the things they're good at. You could say, you know, learn your preferences for something. But Amazon's good at that. Netflix is good at that. These are, these are things that you can have services that run. Um, it doesn't have to be a single, there's probably not one best preference learning algorithm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you say, but, but as long as we have the, the, the data providence, is the key thing. Um, if, if you don't own the data and can't control it, then um, you don't really have any say in how it's used, um, and if it's only being gathered and paid for by advertising, then it's going to be used for advertising. So you know that's another place where we can we can see changes in the way we operate with AI. Um, the other piece of it is that you know AI itself um, is is really just reflecting the the quote wisdom of the data that's been put into it. Today's AI, mm-hmm. um, it isn't. Um, it it mostly is just imitating very you know at at scale, uh lots and lots of examples of cats on videos or whatever the data is, right? Yeah. People saying mom. Um and it's not uh it, it's 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 garbage in, garbage out, right? When it comes to personal preferences, we haven't really seen this exploited properly yet, where mm-hmm. you curate what you want the AI to learn from. So for instance, like you, you can say uh, say with that personal memory example um, you dealt with that was that faux pod that you did at, at that party one time you know mm-hmm. you you don't want to forget it because you maybe want to learn from it when, in in certain contexts like psycho psychotherapy or self-improvement or something mm-hmm. but you also don't want to like advertise it and make it super easy uh, to come to mind when you're in a situation where it might make you nervous or something, mm-hmm. right? So you wanna be able to tell the AI, um, I want you to optimize um, your feedback to me and your inferences around the goals of helping me be, be more effective in social situations, helping me remember things professionally and so on. Um, and, then, and then the AI is just an optimization engine. It will learn the optimal way of organizing the memory to, to, to serve those goals.
0: Well, it feels like all of that comes back down to a very human thing, which is trust. I mean, will we ever learn mm. to trust AI to make those sorts of decisions on our behalf? The reason we're asking it very simplistic questions is we don't trust it to answer any more complicated questions. I, your Trust is super important, Luke, and I think we, we need to step back a level and say we we have...
1: In the U- U.S. at least, we about mm-hmm. 40% of the U.S. voting population has lost its trust in what is true. Is It's lost its yep. trust in evidence as a way of finding out what's true. Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to be polemic. I mean, we have an epistemological crisis. We've mm-hmm. essentially said, our leaders, some of our leaders have said to the population, it doesn't matter what your teachers or lawyers or any priests or anything, it doesn't matter what any, anyone says with who has an established credential based on evidence. They it only matters what you want to believe and what the people around you are saying. Okay. Until that's the trust problem today. That trust problem was help, was partially created because of misuse of AI by social media, right? Mm-hmm. So it's filter bubbles and so on. But it's also the fundamental answer of how you get a relationship with trust in AI. If I don't, if I don't trust that the information steward from my digital data is, is on my side. I'm not going to trust the conclusions of AIs that are based on that data. You know, and and uh, here's a good interesting example. Early on um, in China, they, uh, I, I got to, I read something that was really interesting that they, they wouldn't, um, they paid no attention to paid uh, television advertising about consumer products. Um, mm-hmm. And they also believed in these rumors or like that, that you know, that, the, the Chinese market got all the stuff that was defective that didn't get shipped over the West and so on. And so there was a lot of returns in consumer products um, and the marketing didn't, and marketing people didn't understand why their, ma- their ads didn't make any effect. And the reason is they had been systematically lied to for their entire lives by authority figures. Mm-hmm. So a television ad sounds like that, looks like that. So they only believe anecdotal information from their peers, which also is full of rumor, right? And mm-hmm. therefore misinformation. That's an analog for what's happening now on a political scene, right? Um, So we need to just reestablish the fact that um, we have we have a real society with real notions of truth um, that aren't propaganda and that we are going to we can build trust in government, trust in corporations, trust in your in your social organizations um, and slowly rebuild that trust empire. And then the AI is just an amplifier on top of that.
0: Well, it feels on top of that we need um, transparency. Then we, we need mm. to design with transparency and privacy at the core, and, and think about ownership. You know, at, at the end of the day, if, if your your digital—I keep using the word detritus—but I guess the digital output that you are ambiently uh, placing into the world through social media posts or, or other activity um, using a mobile phone, we we need to have um, ownership of some of that data. Mm-hmm. We need to we need to know. What's going where, and and how do we put that at the core of thinking about the design of the sort of web that we we really deserve as humanity? Is it a move towards things like decentralisation away from the uh, centralization that we seem to have in in the 21st century?
1: You know, I don't. I don't have a clear opinion on whether it's decentralized or not. I, mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Decentralization may be a piece of it, but decentralization feels at first blush kind of like a let's make it less easy to count, you know, or to gather. I mean, which isn't not. It's just not a problem. I and mean, computers are absolutely omniscient. That to, to be able to remember things and count things, it's not going to gather and remember and store. It, there's a zero friction anymore to any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it's more about like how do we, how do we curate that. Digital uh, stream uh, in a way that's benefit to us. I mean, here's a simple thing: if you if you say, well, why don't why don't we make AI that that gives us better feedback about our health, for instance? Well, who owns our health data? How do we get to it? Right now, there's all kinds of ways in which we're stopped from getting our own health data. Yeah, and and it's not. But I mean, I would be. I mean, wouldn't you vote to have a really good health record of every single encounter with every health in your phone? Yeah, I mean, why not, right? But there's all kinds of reasons why that's difficult. Art- artificial human-made reasons, not technical reasons, right? Um, on the other hand, I really wouldn't want my, um, uh, if I had a psychiatrist, an uh, interview with my psychiatrist in the, <laughs> on Facebook, right? Or some other, I, I, there's a boundary there where I don't want, I don't want any government help, thanks very much on that mm-hmm. one, you know? And so we have to make these decisions on kind of how you steward the data. That's the key to it. Um, I know it's not like a broken record here, but actually until you get that right, you can't do anything else. Um, Let's say you solve that problem of of stewardship so that you could trust the data. You had a relationship with either company or or your piece of hardware or something that said, I I trust this boundary that my Mm -hmm. personal data, I can I can afford to let it see me. Okay. now let's talk about what you could do with that. Right. Well, we both have cameras pointed at our eyes right now. Mm-hmm. that can't all the cameras on every cell phone we have that's modern today has the resolution and frame rate necessary to look at your pupils and to know with look at how they're they're dilating for instance to look at your blood in your skin and mm-hmm. your heart heart rate to know your heart rate variability to know whether if you keep do it every single day and whether you're getting a fever. Um, to even get things like uh, some some there's some evidence you could do this, blood blood pressure as well, other things like that. You can certainly also get, if you got a really good camera, you can actually look at micro variability in the pupils and see things that are relevant to basically your emotional state deep inside your limbic system. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of things that are there. There's also the fact, and, and there's also the fact that just by looking at the strokes, how you swipe on your phone and how you use a keyboard. Uh, Can actually predict with high reliability whether you're going to have a psychotic episode or not if -hmm. you're under care for a severe mental illness. So these, the potential of this data is enormous to help us see ourselves better. Now, what we to do is we could say, let's create an AI program or a series of AI programs whose goal is only to help us be better. And I call that Big Mother instead of Big Brother. Yeah. Um, and so a big mother, AI, is a thing that's job is to m- nurture and help you learn and be a better human being. And that's not happy talk. Uh, that's the job of it as opposed to keeping me addicted to clicking and, and, and worrying, right? Mm-hmm. To, and you, you can gather data on that task. You can build models that optimize for those tasks. You can have scientific theory about what works and doesn't work. And all that can be accelerated now in a pace that we've never had before.
0: But the question then is, Is does mother have to be big in the big tech <laughs> sense? I mean, it, can't yeah. it just be small? Can't we own this data? All of the data, especially when health and, and what you're talking about there, the the idea that if I have full ownership over all of the health data that I'm either ambiently producing through wearable devices or or um, other sorts of uh, interventions that I've made. I can walk around with that data in a secure um, digital wallet and I can start making decisions as to whether I want to share that with research groups, whether I want to share a little bit more with my doctor than with um, a drugs company or an insurance company, for example. I, I certainly don't want Big Mother to be Johnson and Johnson. The famous cradle-to-grave company. (laughs) I don't want them to have full access to to that information. Or if I choose to give them full access to the information, if they develop any drugs from, from that data, then I certainly would like my cup for contributing my small piece of information to that collective knowledge system. So, Are there ways we can all start to take ownership of the data that we produce to create these collective knowledge systems? That together can and help our intelligent assistants be smarter. And, and by virtue of that, the feedback loop allows us to be smarter and, and more virtuous too. Yeah, there are. I mean, it's a fundamental
1: um, trade off or, or a quandary here is that mm. to build a big mother model uh, that optimizes for some, like given these signals, optimize human behavior this way. Uh, so get people to stop uh, hurting themselves with chronic disease, for instance, doing behaviors mm-hmm. that cause chronic disease or or whatever it is, or addiction. Um, so you can't build those on subjects, uh, on in clinical trials of size one. You you have to have population level data to, or at least population scale data, you know, like mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of data points over time to build the theories around how to solve those problems. But if you do that, of course, in a completely um, traditional old fashioned way, you would basically have a vault of all the personal, very personal data. And either you lock the vault up like in HIPAA medical record thing um, mm-hmm. completely, or you try to like anonymize it a little bit uh, in such, in such a way that you can let researchers have access to it. It's sort of an unsolved problem in general, but there's a new, there's a, there's a series of ways of doing it in AI. Um, basically you could think of it as federated learning. Um, it's a kind of distributed machine learning where you get the effect of a global model based on a population of data um, mm-hmm. Without the ability to, to do fishing experiments, to go into that global model and look up what Luke said on Tuesday, um, and and that um, that has been uh, it was first done in um, some experiments with uh, with TensorFlow and some of the big neural net machines, but also like the Sherpa company you mentioned, they're they're doing it for all kinds of other all the other AI um, modeling techniques, and so you can have a little bit of your cake and eat it too. But what what we haven't fig- figured out yet, though, is you know this highly personalized learning thing. So mm. you know, let's say that I am a snowflake. Like my the model that makes me tick is different than the one that makes you flick tick. So like for instance, like say I have a problem with I'm eating too many potato chips and I need to and I'm getting heart disease or something like that. Well, mm. maybe the tricks that work on me are different than you. And if that's the case, it's going to be hard to build a model of, unless you just watched me eat a lot of potato chips and die many times over. You know That's the way machine learning works today. You well, can't I mean, that's a- how
0: it works today. It shows <laughs> me pictures of people dying of eating potato chips and goes, that's going to be you, buddy. It, it, it kind of inverses exactly. that relationship. So, But yeah. sorry, Tom, how do you think we can no, uh, turn right. it that's back the to personalised? I don't are, think there's talking- an easy way to do
1: um, using traditional neural net and, and data-centric, data-driven statistical learning systems. Mm. They basically, they're data-driven, population data-driven things. Um, the, like I said, federated learning can help protect a little bit of an anonymity. Mm-hmm. However, um, if, let's say, this is unproven and unfinished work, but let's say you have the idea of a dialogue with, the user, with an agent where you're, you're essentially teaching the agent what you want to know. Or, what you want to be good at. Yeah. So, memory is an easy example. Remember that fact. Of course, it remembered everything, but it's remembering that fact in particular because it, then if you say something vague like, oh, What was that thing I asked you to remember like last Tuesday? What was that thing with that guy with the blue background or some other vague query like that, <laughs> that it could probably get that right because uh, you told it that was an important thing to remember. So, along on the needle in the haystack problem gets easier. Um, another way it might be like, Remind me that if I drink three bottles of wine, I'm not going to feel good the next day. But remind me when I'm about to drink the three bottles of wine, not the next day, right? Overcome my human ignorance or human limitation. Um, you could train an AI to do those sorts of things without a population level model. You could just do it as with your own personal AI. Um, mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be hard. Uh, we used to do that kind of machine learning in the 80s. Uh, It's just it doesn't have it doesn't compete with statistical learning for like average performance over large sets of examples. But if in terms of small numbers of examples, you can you can do this. And so I think we might see the reemergence of this combination of sort of traditional symbolic AI with statistical AI uh, when you get down to this n equals one study.
0: I mean, I mean, I guess the question is then, what is the the point? We get to the the old joke of is Google making us stupid if we can just outsource bits of our, our memory to other agents, which I guess we've been doing throughout history by writing things, by writing things down. Well, will it get to the point where we we'll start expecting less of human beings and more of AI, and won't that really be a, a tragedy?
1: Oh, I, I you know, it's funny. People say it's like, the, it's like the calculator thing with kids. You know, they can't yeah. multiply three-digit numbers anymore. And listen, I stopped multiplying three-digit numbers. You know, I have a PhD. I don't care. I don't need it. It's not <laughs> an important skill anymore. Um, uh-huh. Remembering trivia or looking at the definitions of words. What Google and that sort of whole ilk of uh, super low-friction knowledge retrieval has done as it's super-augmented people like us. So now we can actually think about this. If you're at dinner and someone says a a word uh, that you hadn't heard before or you think it was, that's not, you're really curious about what it really means, the term really means. You can get an answer in five seconds now. Mm -hmm. And then you can contribute that answer to the conversation and go on and do something more, say something more intelligent or move on to a new conclusion. In the past, it would be go to a frigging library. I mean, that would never happen. (sighs) Right. So um, I think that kind of augmentation totally strengthens you. Um, and it even not even just on the level of like social discourse. I mean, this the basic idea that you have so you have reduced the friction for for being able to retrieve things from memory. To it means that you can actually exercise your memory retrieval uh, more often, which is which the science, the psychology says, is how you learn. So, for mm-hmm. example, if I if I remembered, if I encoded a memory one way, episodic memory one way, um, and, and it, then I had a visual in my mind of, of that memory, maybe I'm a visual retriever. But then later on, I'm in the car and go, wait a minute, what about that thing, with that, that scene with the dog or whatever it is? I'm, I'm using an auditory or an object-centered way of retrieving it. I don't have a good memory of that, but the machine could bring it back. Show me mm-hmm. the picture of the, of the thing, with the dog, and I'm like, yeah, that was it. I mean, here's actually the real example I'm thinking of is Mary Lou Jepsen is this fascinating engineer and inventor. She's inventing this near-infrared um, imaging thing that shines red light into uh, your brain and can do all kinds of cool things. Well, she gave a TED Talk in which she held up a piece of chicken <laughs> and shined a red light through it. Now, you can't unsee that. I mean, that's a great <laughs> prop, right? But now people go, oh, who's that chicken lady, you know, that TED chicken lady wow. scientist, you know, like, and then, uh-huh. but, but, but because the, because you bothered to do the retrieval, all of that episodic memory comes back with it, and that strengthens the neural connections to the memory in a way that makes it easier for you to remember that her name is Mary Lou Jepsen the next time. Mm. And, I mean, and so it's a great example of augmentation makes you stronger.
0: Uh, but, but can't we do that anyway, Is it just using the biology of being human. I mean, I best remember things when I walk. I mean, there's parts of New York that I can walk through where I can recall conversations that I've had with people on the phone. At that street corner, and the the only way I can have a meaningful conversation is to be on the move. And partly that's because of COVID nineteen. I'm always sitting in the same location. Everything begins to feel samely. I mean, there's there's so many things we can do as human beings that don't require outsourcing memory to technology. And shouldn't we strengthen those things through um, mindfulness practices, perhaps, instead of just assuming that this stuff doesn't matter anymore? I guess what I'm trying to get at is one how I would feel if. if Tom, you took out your phone in the middle of a conversation that we were having over dinner to Google something, and how I would feel about that. And and, and Secondly, when you forget about how to multiply, what do we actually fill that space with? Are we filling it with stuff which is uh, useful to us, or are we just filling it with more... Detritus, digital detritus, and more clicking and and more buying. And you know, how do we make informed decisions about how to use our, our limited human brain power? Because that's the, the to me feels like the thing that will truly make us superhuman by making the right sorts of decisions about what to interact with in our daily lives, as opposed to having a brain that allows us to interact with so much in our daily lives. It's it's not about it's not about quantity, it's about Quality at the end of the day.
1: Well, th- there's a really good example of this. Like, um, I wish I could give credit to the author I read this from. Uh, 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 if only an you of, had the AI that remember. would allow you if to recall. Ironically, isn't it? Uh, but yeah. he, the example was um, was uh, uh, Jimmy Carter. So uh-huh. Jimmy Carter was a thoughtful, you know, PhD, nuclear scientist, you know, thoughtful man. Um, he does meditation, does self, you know, he's, he's a grounded guy and all this kind of stuff. He has a personal assistant, of course. And so people, mm-hmm. the, the, the anecdote was when people come to visit Jimmy Carter, they go into the room with him and, and they made, he made them feel like he had basically all of his attention was just on them and nobody else. His mm-hmm. assistant would come in and pull him out if he, if his schedule demanded that he leave the meeting or if there was a high priority interrupt. Or he could just say, "Don't forget that." Make it take an action or whatever to the assistant. The assistant was basically augmenting him so he could be more present. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that that enhanced the human experience. I think there's an effect like that. You know, the whole hierarchy of needs thing. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's some equivalent to that incognition, which I, no one's given a name to yet that I've seen. But that idea that you can do the higher things if you can offload some of the the drudgery of the lower things. I mean, if you think mm-hmm. about it like. You know, there are people who are, like, especially I see it in programming, in software engineering, there's a certain kind of brain that's of a a really good software developer. They can keep enormous amounts of registers active in their head, like like just tons of short-term memory, ridiculous amounts. And you go like, and then then they they can apply that to regular life, you know? And they'll remember all this stuff. And he's like, why do you bother remembering all that stuff in your head, right? And they don't bother, it's just easy for them, okay? But as they get older, it's gonna be less easy. But -hmm. that's not the potential of the human brain. I mean, by the time they get old, I hope the programming is being done for them. Programming is a tedious, horrible little task. Why would you want to keep doing it all the time? <laughs> right. Uh, and, but, uh, but conversation never gets old, as it were, especially good ones like mm-hmm. with you. And so I would think that that's what we want to optimize our tech to help us do, to free us up to do this sort of thing.
0: I do wonder whether the the rise of podcasting is actually going to help inform, uh, inform intelligent agents. I'm, I'm sure somewhere someone's trying to trawl through all of Joe Rogan's backlog to teach an AI how to understand comedy and how to understand sarcasm. And and, and mm-hmm. with that kind of science fictional view, I, I do feel like I have to ask but before we finish uh, how science fiction has informed your work. If you've ever seen any really good examples of humanistic. AI being represented in science fiction, and and what we can learn from that. Oh, I mean, amazing
1: amounts of. I mean, all the way, you know, uh, Snow Crash um, (laughs) and the David Brin books. Well, Uh the Brin books were predicting the web and the idea of a global Gaian brain before way before it happened. Snow Crash, Mm -hmm. and then uh, a bunch of the Diamond Age, a bunch of these companies, the companies' books. These books are so prescient. Um, I mean, even Asimov, you know, with his three laws of robotics was already getting at the ethics of AI early on. Um, and as you know, you, you've talked some of your people you've talked to dealt into that example. They, they basically, he's, he's, he made a literary device out of this interesting philosophic problem that we are now living with. You know, do we, do we the AI that drives Facebook's platform to allow Myanmar's dictators to kill people,
0: mm. is
1: that, you know, is that self-harm? And should the AI have prevented it? And if the, and, and if the AI can't prevent it, should we just turn off the AI? This is the ethical question mm-hmm. we're talking about right now, right? So science fiction authors have been great at this sort of thing. And, and, I, and I actually use them for inspiration all the time. I mean, even crazy guys like Charles Strom, who, who had this, uh, I think it was called Accelerando, where yeah. there's different parts of space. Where the um, the this physics of that part of the universe allows automation to work better or worse, so that uh, it turns out, in, if you're in the automation-friendly part of the universe, you can have deep fakes that are in, that is indistinguishable from real humans. Mm-hmm. So that if you want to have an authentic conversation, you have to fly over to the um, to the part where only like you know teacups uh, cups and strings work, you know low tech area, but uh-huh. you can trust your communications. Isn't that great? Because that's that's happening today, mm-hmm. right? Do we do we allow ourselves to interact on a digital media in which you can't, in which an anonymity is 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 the, is the norm, and everything just works well, or do we put in some friction, mm. you know, and and make it more like a human experience?
0: Well, well, Tom, let me allow you to do a little bit of Charlie Stross style future gazing here. Where do you think humanistic AI will ultimately get us? As a species, what, what, what do you think is the true future rollout of this? What's your most hopeful vision for humanistic AI?
1: Well, I, I think that's easy. I, I think there's the principle is um, optimize for human benefit in your optimization function, what I call the objective mm-hmm. function. Um, once we, it, I think as, as we understand that almost all AIs are driven by optimization or objective function inside some reduced errors against classification, whatever it is, is objective function. And as we recognize that those functions, which are machine understandable, okay, embody mm-hmm. essentially human values right now. So if an advertising uh, machine says, "I only optimize for time on site," then you're going to get behavior control that's optimized for that. But if you say, and optimized optimize for time on site and pro-social interaction and mm. self-care and, uh, behaviors and so on. Um, and you can measure those things and bubble the results of those up. We can start having a rational society where we say, look, it's not about us versus them uh, regulating bad companies to do good things. It's like, mm-hmm. let's agree on what we want to achieve in society. And then let's, let's orient and align the technology we're using to help us behave, um, that achieves those those goals, and I think that's completely doable um, as long as we have a free. I mean, you know, we don't we don't lose our freedoms, um, you know.
0: <laughs> well, well, with, with that smaller uh, small caveat, <laughs> caveat. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tom. Oh God, um, I mean, I just want to thank you for uh, for your insights uh, today, and and on that note, Tom Gruber, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. It's been fun. Thank you to Tom for his thoughts on how to design more humanistic AI. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.